This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Welcome to Better Late Than Never. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. This week, I am joined by returning guest, Will. Hey, Will, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hey, Dave. Good to be here. Good to have you. This is a movie podcast where the premise is that I have a guest come on, and we watch a culturally significant film where one or both of us have never seen it before. We talk about it before we watch it make predictions on what we think it's about, and we talk about it after we watch it. We recap the film, reflect on our predictions, and see if the movie lived up to the hype. Will, you've been on the pod before. You know this is how the pod goes, so this is all nothing new to you. Mm-hmm. But Will, uh, since we last recorded, the world has kind of changed. Yes, hugely, uh, especially here in the United States, but across the globe as well. Uh, very rapid change, um, very violent change, a very exciting change uh, if you want to be optimistic about it. If you do want to be optimistic and, you know, hopefully that optimism pans out. But yeah, so even in the face of one huge thing going on with the COVID pandemic, we have now something else happening, which is the protests and movement that has erupted in the United States in the wake of the death of George Floyd. And with all of that happening, I felt that, well, at first I wasn't even sure if I wanted to keep doing the podcast because it felt frivolous. But um, then I thought maybe I could just keep doing it and pick a movie to watch that was topical or of the moment. So with that in mind, uh, this week, we are going to be watching Do the Right Thing from 1989. Which I'm excited to see. And I was excited, Dave, when you reached out and you asked if we wanted to do a movie like this, maybe uh, an early Spike Lee movie that you brought up or, you know, uh, we, we talked about a number of different things. Um, and I think I, I absolutely understand where you're coming from as far as. Uh, feeling, you know, what we normally do on the show, what you normally do as sh- on the show as being maybe a little bit frivolous. And I kind of feel like that anytime I think of anything that uh, kind of isn't related to what's going on. Um, I mean, everyone has different engagement levels. I've been very engaged with the news. Um, I'm just, you know, constantly amazed and just emotionally put through um, kind of the ringer. And I say that being, you know, a, a white person in the comfort of my own home. Um, yeah, it, it just, is worth noting, uh, just for the record, we are both white 
uh, and male. So, you know, everything that happens and that we say is going to be coming from that perspective during the rest of this pod. So just Uh, noting that. Absolutely right. But uh, it just seems like it's such a prevalent thing going on. um, And that, you know, if the show wasn't themed at least around something, or at least if you hadn't, didn't make mention of it, it would be a little bit weird. So I'm glad that we get to um, kind of keep in sort of the general theme of what's going on. And specifically uh, this movie, and we talked about an earl- a couple early Spike Lee movies that we might want to do. Um, this is a movie that I have, I don't believe ever seen. I think I have seen parts of it here and there. I think it does kind of mesh together in my mind with some other movies that were kind of around the same time. Um, and maybe some other Spike Lee movies or some other movies that had maybe similar themes or were in similar settings that came out in the nineties, uh, early nineties. Um, so like what, uh, what other movies do you associate it with? I think I definitely associated it with some other kind of early Spike Lee movies as well as some kind of early 90 movies like uh, Boys in the Hood, maybe, or um, Juice, uh, movies like that. Um, I think there was sort of a, a genre, a sort of mini genre in that period of time. Maybe you said this movie was 89, so I think it was kind of started at all, even though it wasn't Spike Lee's first film. Um, and then I think that the, throughout the 90s, there were um, movies that were sort of in a, a similar vein, dealing with racial issues, starring um, kind of uh, multiracial or mainly African-American casts by uh, black American filmmakers um, that you know, were important uh, kind of for the time and probably still remain important. So I'm kind of excited to revisit that period in in movie history, I guess. Yeah. So uh, I have also not seen this film. I like you seen bits and pieces of it along the way, but uh, not the whole thing from beginning to end. So this will be a first for both of us. Uh, How well do you know Spike Lee? I know him pretty well uh as far as his films i'm somewhat hit or miss with him um as far as i think everyone knows spike lee is sort of a media personality and cultural critic as well he's always popping up on various news shows and things like that everyone's familiar with seeing him sitting on the sidelines of Knicks games and all that Mm. kind of thing and he's kind of been a cultural figure and fixture i think um to anyone who's you know, watches movies and television and is involved in sort of pop cultural things. Um, So in in that respect, I'm definitely quite familiar with him. As far as his movies go, I've seen a good amount of his uh, movies. I have not seen a good amount of his movies. And those that I have seen, some of them I have absolutely loved. Others that have been recommended to me, um, I kind of didn't like as much. All right. Cool, cool. I don't think I've seen a ton of his work. I've seen 25th Hour. I've seen Inside Man. Mm -hmm. And gosh, is that it? I'm not even sure. It's interesting you mentioned those two because those are actually the the widest films. (laughs) They are, which is because they're also the ones that um, I kind of enjoyed the most. And I think particularly when you're talking about Inside Man, which um, it's more of Spike's twist on a typical genre movie and i think that's why i enjoyed it and when i was thinking about why i haven't seen as many spike lee films even though 
Um, he was definitely a director that I always understood and respected as being important, and particularly of um, sort of the, the indie film movement that happened in the 80s into the 90s, of which Spike Lee was a very central figure. I mean, I think that in that era, I did watch or sort of learning about that era, I did watch some early Spike Lee movies like She's Gotta Have It, um, Crooklyn, maybe a few oh, of the other uh, ones. Oh, you know what? I've seen Crooklyn. Mm. I watched that with my parents when I was a kid. And, you know, I didn't really love those movies, to be honest with you. No, I didn't like Crooklyn either. But, you know, like I said, I was a kid when I saw it. I feel like I was too young to be watching that movie. Mm. Maybe. So I, I think if I revisited it as an adult, I might feel a little bit differently about it. I, I do remember I, I read a book and um, for if you if Dave, if you haven't read this or anyone in your audience, um, it was called Spike, Mike, Slackers and Dykes. And it was written in the 90s and it was about the sort of the 80s into the 90s uh, independent film movement. And I think when I look back at that era, you know, I, I, I watched some of each of the filmmakers that were sort of. Uh, prevalent in that movement but you know certain ones uh, and I guess they kind of came later but you know Tarantino and or the Coen brothers or even Jim Jarmusch I was like okay I gotta watch all of those movies um, whereas Soderbergh or Linklater, Linklater or uh, or Spike Lee um, or you know Michael Moore on the documentary side I kind of maybe even came around to a little bit later or maybe watched a few of the requisite ones and then was kind of ready to to move on and i think spike lee kind of fit into that um although you know later on when i saw movies like 25th hour and um and and inside man i very much enjoyed those movies and and they're kind of my favorites of the years they came out um black Klansman, which came out about a year ago i absolutely loved i thought it was fantastic hilarious um, poignant, completely in your face. And I think I've come to appreciate that, thinking why I maybe didn't react as much to Spike's earlier films was I think that my comfort level is sort of in genre or pastiche or things of that nature, things that maybe are talking about serious subjects but are a level removed, like they're a sci-fi dystopia or there's something like, you know, Tarantino or the Coens where everything is kind of steeped in the trappings of genre and making an And maybe that makes you feel a little bit that. safer. Yeah, I think More that's absolutely why. I think that's absolutely mm. why. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think I avoided watching Spike movies, but I don't think that I was a completist of his work uh, the way I probably should have been. Yeah, well, bringing it back around to this movie, I think uh, this one is, it's, from what I can tell, not going to be a genre film. And from its reputation, it's going to be one that's going to be tackling, you know, race and race issues pretty head on in a way that's likely going to take us out of our comfort zone. So, well, I good. mean, good. Yeah. <laughs> and good. that's that's the whole point of this movement, right? Uh, the whole point of this movement is... Even if you're a white person like we are who considers ourselves sort of an ally of the cause, we've got some work to do and we've got to look at not only, you know, reconsider what our own prejudices might be, but also look at our, you know, to, to kind of in the, to, to quote the parlance of our times, our own white privilege and consider just how different 
uh, our entire life experiences have been. And, um, you know, to realize that I think that, you know, we grew up, um, even if you grew up in sort of a more or less liberal progressive surrounding, if you grew up as a suburban white kid, um, oftentimes you sort of learned about racism and considered it, I don't know if you had the same thing as a kid, but considered it kind of in a historical context, like slavery happened, Jim Crow happened, civil rights happened, but you know, that was back way before I was born. Now people are cool, right? And clearly that's just not the case. Well, the context of my education was definitely like, those were things that happened in the past and then we beat them and we won. Right. But um, growing up in the town that we live in, uh, unfortunately, I had those preconceptions uh, broken pretty early. Uh, so I did realize that that wasn't true and have known that for a while. You know, yeah. I I think I did as well um, to a certain extent. And there's knowing something on an intellectual level and then there's knowing something um kind of on a more visceral level and those Mm, are different things definitely true um well so anyway um just uh insofar as what we think we're about to see and do the right thing will what do you think this movie's about i think do the right thing is about a bunch of people living in new york i'm gonna guess brooklyn Uh, i i picture it being hot i picture a lot of people in tank tops and i think that maybe that's and, and I know that, that Boys in the Hood kind of had the same thing, um, but I think that there's definitely um, black people in the cast as well as, um, you know, all other races. The phrase, the block is hot, occurs to me. Mm, yeah, I think so. And I, I think that there are racial tensions between the characters. Um, I think that there might be a Jewish character, maybe an Italian character, maybe Hispanic characters and black characters all living in um, a area um, or maybe a, a neighborhood in Brooklyn that isn't necessarily uh, financially well off and that they're maybe having conflicts with one another. That's all I got. That's I think that's what it is, but I think that's all I got. Uh, who do you think is in it? Spike Lee is in this movie. I think he's in most of his earlier movies, although I think he hasn't really appeared in one of his movies uh, probably for a long time, unless I'm forgetting something. Um, I feel like Danny Aiello uh, is in this movie. And I mean, I I want to say a Lawrence Fishburne or a Samuel L. Jackson, but I may be off base there. Um, but other people who kind of fit that, that mold, so to speak. Okay, okay. Um, so for myself... And and this is, I don't know if it's cheating because like I think I've caught scenes from this movie on TV or in clips, but what I think it's about is it takes place in Brooklyn and there is a racist pizza shop owner hmm. and there is a character whose name I believe is Radio Rahim who has a radio and the pizza shop owner smashes the radio and either as a direct result of this or later, you know, just given that clearly there's tensions 
that are in, indicated by the fact that he's done this, the climax of the movie is that the pizza shop gets burned down. And that's what I, I believe is the film. I believe you're right, because all of that sounds familiar to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because um, uh, the, the, the clip I've seen is of the pizza shop owner smashing the radio. Or it's a boombox. Um, you know, a classic, uh, you know, late 80s, early 90s boombox. And the people who I either know are in it or I'm pretty sure in it, I got four. So uh, Rosie Perez. Oh, yeah. Giancarlo Esposito. John Turturro. Yep, yep. And also Danny Aiello. Danny Aiello is the guy who uh, smashes the radio. Danny Aiello. Now, what kind of happened to him? Because I think he was definitely sort of the go-to Irish-American guy for a while. Did he just kind of get displaced by Gandolfini when Gandolfini blew up? I don't know, because I feel like there was this period when I was younger where half the movies that were coming out, the trailer for the movie would always list the cast and it would always end with, and Danny Aiello. (laughs) Yeah. He'd always be the last guy in the cast. He'd have a few scenes and he'd either be like the mobster heavy or he'd be like a pizza restaurant owner or something like that. He'd always and be one Danny of those Aiello. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what happened, but he stopped being the last guy after a while. And I don't know why, but he did seem to like be omnipresent when I was younger and then drop off. I don't know what he... If he just retired or got bored or what, but yeah, I, I have no idea. Gandolfini usurped him. No idea, but um, so are there any quotes or anything that you think uh, you know in terms of like a scene? Yeah, um, all those scenes sound ex- exactly right on. I I agree with you. I think that's. I mean, that all sounds very familiar. And like I said, I mean, this is a movie that I've definitely seen bits and pieces of along the way, but kind of has melded with some other movies. You know, part of me thought that there was uh, that there was some element of it that had to do with um, police brutality. But I think that maybe I'm just taking current events. And I know that that's featured prominently in uh, in um, Boys in the Hood. Um, So maybe that's kind of what i was thinking of maybe that doesn't really factor into it so um i gotta say no not really uh other than what we already put down i don't think i have any other expectations okay okay yeah i think that's it for predictions for me too you know do you have any do you think there's any music that's gonna pop up any specific songs or music that might come up in the movie because i was thinking about the fact that there's a kid who's playing music from a boombox very prominently in the one scene that I'm pretty sure is in this, but I'm like, what's he playing? I think that early on um, Spike, and probably still is, but I think early on was known for putting music, um, kind of recognizable music uh, into his, or or music into his movies that were significant uh, to the film. Um, That said, Given the time this movie was made and the budget probably available, they probably didn't have, you know, enough money to get clearance for really big, expensive songs. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a song in this movie from someone who is sort of an unknown or or 
kind of starting out when this movie was made that went on to do bigger things. That would be interesting. Well, okay. Well, in that case, I think we've got all our predictions down. Uh, Is there anything else you want to get down on the record before we go ahead and watch this movie? No, I don't think so. I'm excited to, to see it. Me too. All right. Well, in that case, we are about to go watch Do the Right Thing, and we will come back and discuss it in part two. So we're back from watching Do the Right Thing. Hey, we're back. Yeah, so... Um... <laughs> I had Yeah. Se- yeah. I, I had seen, as I mentioned, bits and pieces of this movie along the way, and clearly some of our predictions were correct. So to a certain extent, I would say I knew what to expect from this movie. And I, you know, I even knew largely how it ended. What I did not expect was for this movie to be so alarmingly prescient of what's going on right now. It was alarming is a good word. I hadn't thought of that word, but that's exactly the right word. And, um, you know, to talk about this movie, you know, we can talk about it as far as it being a movie and also as far as it being um, important uh, culturally and so relevant, alarmingly so, um, as to what's happening right now. I mean, one thing that I thought of while watching this movie and kept popping up in my mind over and over and over again, we can think about this, is this movie was made in 1989. Yep. Which is 31 years ago. And you subtract 31 from 1989 and you get to 1958, right? Um, In between 1958 and 1989, we had the entire civil rights movement. We had Martin Luther King. We had Malcolm X. We had uh, the Civil Rights Act pass. Uh, We had, you know, very drastic and real change happen um, in those 30 years as far as even, you know, where you could sit on a bus if you were a black person or what water fountain you drank out of. And then I'm trying to think between 30 years ago and now, and just how alarmingly current, exactly current this movie seems and everything that happened in it. You know, I would even go so far as to say, it, if you look at the 31 years that have transpired between the film and today, there's at least one way in which things have gotten worse that I noticed right away, which is the militarization of the police. The cops in Do the Right Thing are just not what cops are now. Yeah, um, and I don't know if we're going to be how far, how much all over the place we're going to be. In I think we're going to be a little this. bit more all over the place than normal in this one, both because of kind of 
the way we're going to wind up tackling this one in particular. And also because it's not to call the movie plotless, but it's a bit of a meandering film. Um, it, it, it is. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, during a lot of it, I, what kept it coming across my mind was that most of this movie, it's actually kind of a hangout film right up until the very end. It's like, it is, it's a hangout movie in this neighborhood, except with very subtly ramping up of tension. I think that's exactly the right way to put it. And I think one of the reasons when I did see bits and pieces of it um, that maybe before watching the whole thing, uh, maybe even turned me off a little bit uh, was exactly that. Because it's like, well, what's actually happening in this movie? It's just people kind of hanging out. Um, which this time around I actually enjoyed a lot. Uh, and the fact that it's tension so uh, slowly simmering throughout a day, this whole movie takes place in a day, is entirely the point. And it was the fun in watching it. And it also is what made it, um, you know, the culmination, what happens in the end, uh, just kind of so brutal. One of the things that made it that way. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I guess just to bring some semblance of organization to this, the, you know, the normal organization of the pod. So as far as uh, the background on this, Spike Lee got the, I, some of the idea for the movie from watching an episode of Alfred Hitchcock presents in which the, uh, the characters are talking about how hot weather increases people's violent tendencies. Hmm. And so that gave him the idea for this, uh, this idea that there's a heat wave that makes people, you know, more agitated and tense. And that, you know, uh, the phrase I mentioned earlier in part one, the block is hot. I think that either comes from, or is the title of an episode of the boondocks that I think must be either inspired by or based on this movie. Um, where it's just the middle of a heat wave and there's this, you know, increased agitation and tension because of it. And the other thing, uh, too, is that uh, the cinematographer of this movie is Ernest Dickerson, who does an awesome job. He made Demon Knight, the Tales from the Crypt movie. Oh, yes. Yes, Have which I've seen and enjoyed. I like that movie so much. Anyway, uh, and he does a great job in this too um one of the things i read was uh spike lee said a way that dickerson got the effect of making it seem hot out was well one thing he did was uh they used um they painted the block they were on uh warmer colors so like reds and oranges just to give the actual color palette a hotter warmer look to make yeah. it seem hotter because you know there's all these different ways that you want to actually convey visually the sense of heat because you can't actually make the audience feel it another way they did it uh too was obviously to have the characters look like they're sweating a ton which was well done but um one thing he did too was to uh have a butane lighter right under the camera which gave you those like waves those like hot waves under the sweltering view wow i did not know that um i mean the color palette was definitely very vibrant and very much uh stood out um and was very well done um the the fact that he actually had a lighter under the camera that is amazing yeah 
but so then we come up to the actual director himself so spike lee um getting into him a little bit so spike is not his given name his name is shelton jackson lee spike is a nickname from his mom he's got a huge filmography um before this he'd made a couple films uh she's got to have it and school days mm-hmm. after this he made so many movies but just to call out a few so there's crooklyn clockers malcolm x get on the bus which i'd seen a little bit of uh summer of sam 25th hour inside man miracle at saint anna old the old boy remake uh and uh, black klansman and just coming out to date us last night on netflix the five bloods Yes, which I will definitely see. But yeah, I mean, it's it's quite an incredible filmography. Um, and I also think that having seen more recently some of his later works, I think he's definitely evolved as a filmmaker throughout the years. But you can see his signature style. It's just so strong in this movie. Yeah. Uh, speaking of signature style, so uh, it does not appear in this film, but I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole about this signature thing that he does called the double dolly shot. Do you know about this? No. So it first appears in the movie Mo Better Blues in 1990. Mm-hmm. And um, it's exactly what it sounds like. And so uh, it might be obvious to some people, but in case you don't know, um, a dolly shot is when a camera is put on a dolly which is like a tiny little track so that it allows you to move the camera in a way where it's very smooth because when you're holding a camera handheld um you know a steady cam helps but it's it's more um it's shakier so by putting it on a dolly it allows for very smooth motion so that's a dolly shot spike lee likes doing this thing called the double dolly shot which is where puts the camera on the dolly and he puts an actor also on the dolly and he moves them together and you know and they're synchronized so it makes the actor look like they are moving through the scene it makes them look like they're floating it's it's very um uncanny and uh, uh, strange looking and so it kind of um it's very particular and you notice it when you see it so it's it's you know it's quote-unquote arty when you see this shot and uh you said you saw black klansman yeah and i believe it is used you know it's used right at the end because you know not that i've seen black klansman but i like i went into like you know all these youtube things about it and i saw the shot just as part of the video essay yeah, um, I definitely know the shot you're talking about it and have recognized it as kind of a signature spike move. Um, I didn't know what it was called, but yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely done in Inside Man. It's done in a number of his movies, mm-hmm. and it's quite effective. Um, and that, one of the things that I noticed uh, while watching the movie is just how sort of innovative Spike is as a filmmaker and how kind of rule-breaking he is. And I actually, um, you know, shamefully don't know what his background was. I mean, I don't know if he went to NYU film school or if he just kind of picked up a camera. He he went to Tisch. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think I knew that somewhere along the line. But just the idea that, and I think um, some people might see it as a detriment to him that 
you know, sometimes you're taken out of the film a little bit just because he does something like a really funky shot or he has all those kind of straight ahead uh, shots that are a little jarring where the character speaks right to the camera. Yeah, it's almost um, like it's breaking the fourth wall a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because that yeah. definitely happens in this movie. A lot. Um, yeah, well, so the the double dolly shot kind of comes in for some criticism because uh, some people find, especially in the early instances of it, it's not very motivated. So the criticism is that it's just kind of for lack of a better word, it's pretentious. It's artistic just for its own sake. Mm-hmm. And he's actually sort of copped to that. Like he said that in the early instances of it, that he was just kind of showing off. Um, but uh, later uses of it, it is more motivated. So you mentioned Inside Man. Like when in that shot, when Denzel is the one who's uh, it's used for, uh, the shot is used in order to, you know, bring the audience into his emotional state. So it's it's much more motivated and used more effectively. So and the shot in Black Klansman, uh, you know, at least according to the video essay I was looking at, you know, there's a lot even more going on in that one. So his both, uh, you know, in terms of the uh, story and the uh, historical resonances of it. So it seems like uh, it's the shot has come a long way in terms of his oeuvre. But uh, yeah, so that's a, a little bit of a Spike Lee's um, style discussion. Yeah, there. and I think that's, you know, kind of getting more into what I was thinking about and still kind of forming my thoughts, obviously, just having finished the movie. Um, I think that his movies have definitely gotten sleeker. Um, it seems like the production values have definitely, and part of that is that he oh. has a bigger budget to work with, of course, Yeah. Um, as as his career goes forward. Um, but uh, it does seem like the uh, moves that he uses are a bit more meditated, done with a bit more purpose, um, a bit more uh, kind of seamlessly built into the overall narrative, uh, visual narrative of the film, instead of kind of being a bit more jarring. But they're the same. They're the same moves he's had the entire time, um, and he's just kind of gotten to learn how to use them better. And it's nice to see any artist, you know, kind of evolve throughout the years and uh, you know come onto the scene as Spike did with sort of such a brash. Uh, and definitive style and over the years uh, sort of refine it refine it exactly yeah yeah because we'll get to it Um, he's clearly in this movie someone who the talent is obvious Uh, so let's talk about the cast though so we were right in our predictions Uh, it it's featuring Danny Aiello (laughs) Mr. Danny Aiello yeah Uh, apparently they originally wanted De Niro for this Ooh. And you can definitely see it. And I wonder, it, it's such an interesting what if. But at the same time, uh, Danny Aiello is really fucking good in this. He is so, incredibly good, yeah. Yeah. But uh, not to dwell too long harping on the skill of the, the first uh, white actor that I mentioned in this movie. So um, Spike Lee himself is the actual star of the film playing Mookie. And then... We get Ozzy Davis plays Demare. Mm-hmm. Ruby D is mother sister. Giancarlo Esposito nailed it. Plays the character Bugging Out. Bill Nunn from uh, of uh, Spider Man fame is uh, Radio Rahim. That's right. Okay, I didn't make the connection. Yeah, that's where you've seen him before. 
Uh, John Turturro is Pino. Richard Edson is Vito, the other brother. And then, hey, Rosie Perez is Tina in her film debut. Okay, that was her film debut. That I didn't know. Um, it's fantastic opening the movie, of course, with her dancing and all different outfits and, and the Fight yeah, the Power dude. song, which we hear throughout the movie. Yeah, so, you know, we were talking about the music and, like, I expected it to be something like that. I wasn't sure exactly what song, but I figured it was going to be, you know, a, 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 if not Fight the Power, then, like, something like Fight the Power. And then once I heard it playing, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um. Dude, she's a really good dancer, by the way. A very good dancer and, you know, an incredible screen presence. I don't think we've heard much about her for a while, have we? I mean, is she still kind of active in movies? Wasn't she in something? I feel like I did hear about her recently. Wasn't she, like, just in something? Oh, she was in Birds of Prey. Oh, okay. The Harley Quinn movie. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, oh, just a, a few other, like, smaller roles that are worth calling out. Young as fuck martin lawrence yes he's like a teenager in this it seems like and he's kind of doing the funny voice a little bit too yeah and 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 like weirdly skinny i'm used to thinking of martin lawrence as like the stocky counterpoint to will smith Mm -hmm. frankie Faison shows up and i recognize him just because of the wire and then um samuel jackson Sam Jackson, who I predicted, um, yep. so I'll uh, I'll be vindicated by that. Credited as Sam Jackson in this film, so before because he had the ULL, yeah, because before really, I mean, it's 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 even pre Jurassic Park Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, um, and we could, I mean, obviously we could look up his his career on IMDb. I know that he was like a stand-in for uh, Bill Cosby on The Cosby Show earlier in his acting career. Kind of seems like, and I could be wrong about this, but this is probably the first movie where he had the opportunity being the DJ to really do that Sam Jackson voice that we all have grown to love and depend on over the decades. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't. I certainly don't know of any earlier examples. Anywho, so getting into the movie itself, uh, it opens up, and you know what it is, Will? It's a Spike Lee joint. It is a Spike Lee joint. I, I want to talk about the opening because, like, this this isn't a criticism because I liked it a lot. It's just like it's so 1989, like <laughs> stylistically. Um, and and like, I, that comes across as me calling it dated, but that's not what I mean. It like, it just like, it it is very of its time, but I actually found that very, like, I liked it a lot. Like it was just very visually exciting. The, the way the opening credits went with the music, with Rosie Perez dancing, which again was really good. And just like everything from the color palette to the way it was cut together, just like. I don't want to say it was the best part of the movie, but to a certain extent, it was just like the opening credits of this film are like so exciting. Like it's almost like it's like if it wasn't for the fact that Spike Lee had made films before, it's just like such an announcement of like a fresh new talent on the scene. Like, I don't know. I just I really loved the opening of this film. Yeah, and I think that it was, um, it made me realize very quickly getting into it, um, and I probably knew this before, but definitely know it now, just how informative Spike Lee was to 
Um, a lot of the things I saw as a kid, even if I wasn't, you know, as like an 11, 12, 13 year old watching Spike Lee movies. Um, but, you know, knowing about things, like, you know, the music videos that were um, that were popular at the time or even uh, TV shows like in Living Color um, or, or all of that had a visual style, uh, I think, that was heavily influenced by this movie and other Spike Lee uh, movies and the opening sequence uh, with with Rosie Perez dancing is, I mean, I I think just more, you know, the the prime example of that. And so, as as we kind of thought it would be, it's hot as shit out. And the first part of the movie, well, we talked about how it's a hangout movie, kind of. And so a lot of the beginning of the film is kind of just meeting everybody mm-hmm. and like learning the neighborhood and so i guess some of the first people we meet is sal and his family so let's talk about sal and his family what what do you think of sal in particular just to start so before getting into the sons and just focusing on him you know one thing they're they're much more one-dimensional so yeah i mean they have dimensions but they're they're less interesting than sal himself well, did you find? Okay, I'll I'll take a step back. Um, did you think there was a villain in this movie? No. The closest is John Turturro. Yes. Um, the closest is John Turturro, but even him, uh, I think they they portray empathetically. Um, Sal is portrayed incredibly empathetically, even though. Obviously, um, you know, he's <laughs> he's got uh, serious issues as well um, that, you know, we see throughout the movie and especially towards the end of it. Um, but you you kind of like him. I mean, I liked him. I'm going to say that I, I liked him. I, I you know, he was definitely someone, a type of character. And I think this is true of a lot of the characters and, and kind of is going to open up maybe the. Uh, a social discussion, but you would definitely use the word racist or maybe prejudiced. Uh, bigoted. Bigoted to describe them, but not hateful and just a product of their environment. And I think you see that and it's portrayed, you know, across, you know, very blatantly across all the characters in the film, be it the Korean store owners um, or, you know, all the, all the guys hanging out on the street or, or the Danny Aiello character. Um, I mean, he says a lot of times throughout the neighborhood, he definitely has a really kind of a, a love for the neighborhood and, and for his customers. Um, and, well, and, but you know, also a, an underlying or maybe oftentimes not even underlying, uh, prejudice, uh, towards, um, towards black people. Um, which yeah. I thought was, you know, very real. And, you know, I mean, it's it, I've, I've met a million Danny Aiello's in my life. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I mean, there's a few different points to react to there. So, I mean, number one, um, even though there's a lack of a villain and people are treated empathetically, I don't think the film necessarily lets anybody off the hook Definitely for the not. things that yeah. they do wrong, particularly uh, John Turturro. But even uh, Sal, um, you know, given the way he behaves at the end. And also, you know, we may like him uh, at some points, given our sort of like omniscient perspective as a movie viewer. 
but do you think you'd like him if you met him? Yes. I don't think I'd want to hang out with him. Uh, I think if I found myself in Sal's Pizzeria, I think I'd uh, have a slice he's... of pizza and a funny story to tell. Oh, maybe. He's kind of a dick. I mean, he is definitely a dick, but I kind of like dicks. I mean, I, mm. like, I don't want to be friends with him, but... Um... Well, so, and this is, this is where uh, this kind of reaction to this movie is going to be more all over the place than we normally do it. Um, I'm going to jump around a lot in my thinking about this character. So there's a scene where Sal and John Turturro, who's named Pino, Mm -hmm. right? They have, they sit down and talk at one point. And um, number one, um, Pino is much more racist than Sal. Although, again, it doesn't necessarily let Sal completely off the hook for having maybe a subtler, gentler form of prejudice in him. But um, Sal says something about... uh, Pino wants to just close... Pino's like a segregationist. He wants to close down... First of all, he uses the N-word a lot, which you shouldn't do. And he wants to close down the restaurant and sell it and reopen it in their own neighborhood because he just doesn't think that blacks and whites should live and work together and mix. So that's his attitude. But Sal says something interesting about his feelings about the neighborhood, which is what he says is when he looks at the people in the neighborhood, he says they grew up on my food. Yeah. And, um, that's kind of like that's like the kind of shit you hear on an Anthony Bourdain show, mm. you know. Um, and so I thought that was sort of interesting, you know. And maybe it's a little paternalistic, but it, uh, you know, it at least he, he has a feeling of warmth that is just completely absent from Pino, and that particularly continues on to what happens next, which is uh, the, this character Smiley who comes by, who has some kind of uh, uh, mental issue. Um, he, But he's clearly some sort of neighborhood fixture who Sal just sort of says, hey, Smiley, not today, you know, go on. But Pino has this aggressive dick reaction to him and is screaming at him. And, you know, as Pino is screaming at this guy, and this is one of the moments where I thought Danny Aiello's acting was really excellent. Uh, it's it's Sal's sort of like quiet, silent disappointment in his son uh, that I think speaks volumes in this scene. You know where yeah. you you know like Sal probably could have like if if Pino didn't exist, Sal probably could have lasted in this spot a lot longer. So, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Um, I think both characters were very well conceived, very well executed, very well acted um, by Aiello and Totoro. I think that maybe, um, you know, Totoro as the son was similar to the way that Danny Aiello may have been um, earlier in his life when he was younger and angrier and before he had that experience of having a pizza shop for 25 years in that neighborhood and, and, uh, growing that relationship with, with people. Um, 
I think that that's not necessarily what was implied, but I kind of got the idea that that uh, might have been sort of the the journey that that uh, Sal's character uh, had taken, you know, previously throughout the years, or or you know where he was coming from. But I think that's absolutely true. You know, they, you know, Totoro um, and the other brother Vito, you know, both grew up in the same environment, obviously, but. Um, Turturro kind of took it in, in kind of an extreme way. And I think that, you know, just one thing that's, that's true is that, you know, when men are young, they're angry, they're ambitious, they're selfish, um, and they don't oftentimes have a lot of perspective. And, uh, sometimes that leads to them taking on, um, some really horrible ideas um, or opinions or attitudes uh, that sometimes get somewhat smoothed over uh, throughout the course of life. Which doesn't, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Not justify or... It doesn't justify or excuse them. Excuse, um, yeah. But it does, I think, explain. And I, I mean, you just have to kind of spend a few times looking at you know who's posting stuff on the internet to to realize it's always young men universal truth yeah angry young men um but uh you know speaking of john tertura there's that scene where he's talking to mookie about how um basically like all of his favorite people you know be they entertainers or athletes or whatever else are all black and yet he can't sort of like see past that into seeing them as people. I thought that was an incredibly resonant scene and the back and forth between the, the, the two of them. And, uh, you know, Spike just kind of putting that out, you know, for him. And it's something that's just so real um, that, you know, you have. Oh, that's that's still so common now. It's so common that people will have no problem watching black athletes or watching entertainers um, and just wanting them to shut up and dribble, <laughs> you know, maybe, but not, but, but even if it's not as pernicious as that, um, this kind of idea, and I'm, I'm trying to think of the quote or who said it, but it's definitely something that I heard recently uh, where we as a society um, as a whole have a, a love of seeing how high uh, black people can excel. Michael Jordan and and Muhammad Ali and LeBron James, uh, but no desire in raising the floor. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, the in terms of revering black excellence and um, all that, you mentioned a lot of black men there, but uh, there's an interesting thing with Sal and a black woman mm-hmm. later in the film, which is that um, he has this interaction with Mookie's sister Jade later in the film, which is that um, he's really, really nice to her. And neither Mookie nor John Turturro like this. And there's a, a very well-composed shot on Spike Lee's part that uh, shows the two of them side by side not liking it. It's the only time where they're kind of like put on a level um, together. Uh, John Turturro doesn't like it 
for you know his own racist selfish reasons mookie doesn't like it because he believes that sal has a sexual interest in jade did you believe that to be true oh yeah totally he wants to bang her huh you didn't think so i i i I, I, i'll take that back a little bit in that i don't think it's just that he wants to bang her i think he definitely has maybe a crush on her and affinity for her i mean it might not be um you know just that he wants and he maybe he doesn't even want to bang her but he's definitely into her yeah i guess i guess so i mean there's that comment he makes about how like she has such big eyes and everything i guess i just didn't realize it at first just because it didn't cross my mind because he's so much older and uh, like I, I just I thought it was merely paternal um, It and it didn't occur to me that it could be predatory until later. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it was just me being dense. Uh, I mean, maybe I mean, I guess all those things kind of blend together. Um, you know, I mean, he. <laughs> I, it's de- it was definitely paternal, um, and I think it was definitely somewhat uh, not, not necessarily romantic, but he kind of took a shine to her. Um, as I said, you know, maybe he was maybe maybe it was as simple as he was trying to bang her, or maybe it was um, you know just that he that that he had a certain affinity for her. I mean, you know, you don't you, you don't necessarily you, you have cr- you can have crushes on people that aren't sexual, I guess, right? Hmm. I don't know. Well, anyway, I think we've spent enough time uh, talking about the the white character. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, some of the other ones. So we meet um, a few other people, including Mookie, the actual star of the film. What did you think of Mookie? What did I think of the character? What did I think of Spike playing the character? Um, I mean, I oh, guess I'll I answer know. both. As a character, he's just kind of your standard every man i guess in the situation you know to bring us into the situation um and to understand it i mean obviously he's kind of doing what he can to get by he's trying to you know get paid he's trying to uh do right by um his by the by the rosie perez character who is his i don't think wife but girlfriend and they have a son together um, right well, but, well well that was the thing is that like so much of the movie goes by without like there's the like the fact that he actually has a kid like it is just so not really touched on until the end of the movie yeah it's not in fact i don't even know if it's even mentioned until like later on in the movie where he goes and delivers the pizza at her house is well it? rosie perez is present and like talks about how you know she's like talking to her son and like you know oh your father's not here he's such a bum and then Later on, I was like, oh, she's talking about Mookie. Right. I don't think that was made explicit until later on in the movie, um, which was, I don't know if it was deliberate, um, but I think it's maybe true to uh, kind of a, a general experience that folks have, um, you know, when they're in kind of that type of that type of living situation. Um, and that's not even like a racial thing. I think that's also true in uh, white uh, in, in white societies or mini societies, I guess, neighborhoods, whatever you want to call them, um, in which, you know, folks are, are not necessarily, you know, working jobs that have a steady nine to five and, 
and, you know, not necessarily uh, buying houses and all that type of thing. Um, and just kind of it's, you know, day to day, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, another day, another dollar type of existence um, and, and just kind of doing what you can to survive. Um, so I think that uh, I, I don't know if they specifically tried to make it like a reveal later on in the movie. Um, but I don't think they, they totally established it that, that you know, they were a, a family unit. You know, there's another scene um, with another character. Uh, there's Giancarlo Esposito's character, Buggin' Out, who has um, the subplot that uh, leads to the confrontation at the end, which is his uh, noticing that the wall of fame at Sal's, uh, which is all photographs of uh, people who are famous that he wants up on the wall. It doesn't have any black people on it. And uh, Sal says, it's my place. I can have whoever the hell I want on my wall. And I only want Italian Americans on here. So that's what it's going to be. And, you know, it leads to this kind of relatively minor tiff, but it gets bugging out, thrown out of the uh, uh, pizza place. And then he starts wanting to boycott stuff and on and on and on. But um, I don't know. What do you think? Like, do you like <laughs> I was going to pose that to you, um, but OK, I guess I'll take oh, the bullet. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I can take the bullet, too. I mean, um, you know, I well, again, I think one thing that, you know, the character of Buggin, like the character of Pino, they're they're angry young men. Um, who maybe have not uh, yet acquired the gift of perspective totally. Um, I think that obviously in uh, Buggins' cases, you know, it's it's more righteous, his complaint. Um, but I don't think he's... Basically, I, well, I don't J- think it was, it was worth... <laughs> be, yeah, Jade points out that he's getting of, worked up over nothing. Yeah. Yeah, You know, and, you know, in his whole thing about trying to get people to boycott the neighborhood and this kind of like comes back to Sal and his whole thing about being part of the neighborhood. Nobody wants to boycott the place. Right. There's that group of um, four friends with uh, that Martin Lawrence is a part of that's kind of like walking around the neighborhood. They're all like, we love Sal's. We've been eating there our whole lives. You know, they're the ones who come in at the end of the night. You know, nobody actually wants to boycott the the pizza place because they actually do like the pizza place. And most people seem, generally speaking, to like Sal. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, And what Jade says to to Giancarlo Esposito, too, is that, like, he could be channeling this righteous fury into more productive methods of into more productive forms of protest and uh, community activism right which is the, a very salient point and relevant in many ways to 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 what's going on today of course too but he does uh also uh have one of my favorite scenes in the entire thing which is that um did you ever watch the boondocks yeah the animated uh boondocks. yeah yeah so um there's an entire episode that revolves around the concept of the n-word moment and i can't like even refer to it because you know it revolves saying the n-word and i think the episode winds up saying it like i don't know some some ridiculous number of times like five 
bajillion times. But anyway, it's about um, confrontations that start small but then escalate, mm-hmm. basically, where no one can back down. And the way uh, the example in the episode starts is when someone bumps into somebody else and scuffs his sneaker. And uh, I wondered if it was specifically taken from this. I mean, I you know, I, I know it's a thing that happens that generally people get angry about. And as someone who purchases expensive sneakers, I know how conscious I am of them getting dirty. So, you know... It could have come from anywhere, but like given how specific it is, I just wonder if it was taken specifically from this movie. But also, I am just so amused by the fact that the guy, the white guy who does this to Giancarlo Esposito is wearing a Larry Bird jersey. Larry Bird represent. Um, Oh, it's so appropriate. Spike is not subtle. And I think that... That was somewhat of a turnoff for me earlier on, um, but later on, and especially watching Black Klansman, which revels in being very, very not subtle, um, and was incredibly enjoyable. But yeah, the the one white dude in the neighborhood is wearing a Larry Bird jersey, of course. Um, and you know, as a as a white Bostonian, I was a little bit like, "Why you got to do Larry like that, man?" But um, yeah, but you know. It's not about Larry Bird himself. It's about the people who like him. Well, that's true as well. And I mean, we all grew up with, or or I guess you and I did, Um, even though, I mean, we're a little young to really have appreciated Bird in his heyday. Um, But I mean, definitely he was the biggest known sports star, local sports star when I was growing up. And, uh, you know, I, I watched, you know, documentaries and stuff like that about, you know, him and what he meant to the Celtics and the fact that there's definitely a contingent was then still is of Boston white people who I mean that was definitely a part of why they liked him and they liked seeing him uh victorious over the not white people that he was playing against and that was part of the appeal um an ugly part of the the appeal for a certain contingent of people who loved him yeah, and I'm I'm sure also on purpose the fact that the sports conversation had it when uh Mookie is talking to Vito about who's a better pitcher, the Vito's pitcher is Roger Clemens. Right. So, you know. Not subtle, but uh, you know, also not wrong. Really. Well, that's the thing. He's completely right. He's right about everything. Um and he doesn't need to be subtle. Uh, again, I, I, I think that maybe when I saw some of his earlier films when I was younger, um, I felt that kind of some of the really, the you know, everything he does is just so kind of blatant um, and uh, unreserved. And I think that you know, I, I may have at the time had a, a reverence uh, for, you know, if subtlety isn't the word, you know, kind of meaning that you had to do a little bit of work for. Um, as I've gotten older and seen more things, it's just it's two different styles. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter. One is not uh, one is not superior to the other. It's just 
two ways of getting to the same place and in some ways being, you know, not subtle and not wrapping things up in sort of a layer of symbolism or metaphor and just kind of being right out there with it is uh, is better in a lot of ways. Well, maybe it's wrong to call it subtle, but um, th- there are moments in the film. So like Radio Rahim, who's the character who walks through the whole movie carrying a uh, classic boombox, which, which actually before I even get into anymore. this. You remember those boomboxes? Yes, I remember as a kid um, seeing, you know, teenagers or young adults walking around with big boomboxes and uh, scaring and annoying old ladies. And aside from seeing that when I was a kid, um, you know, I, I, I here's here's one thing, a specific memory I have is when the Beastie Boys Fight for Your Right to Party came out. There was a, a teenager who lived next door to us. We lived in like a trip, tr- a triple house thing. Um, so we had a neighbor to the left and to the right of us. And uh, we had a teenager who lived in the uh, in the apartment next door to us. And the summer that that song came out, he blasted it on his boombox nonstop. Oh, my God. <laughs> and... Um, I, I, it's a very specific memory for me. Um, and I remember, you know, I, I remember my dad occasionally going out to the stoop to kick the ke- teenagers, like to be like, ah, get out of here. Cause they would just always be out there playing loud music. Yeah. Um, that's... but, but generally, Sorry yeah, I do that. remember people walking down the street with a boom box and, 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 you know, and, and that being a thing. And, um, even though I never liked it at the time. <laughs> it brought um, you back, right? <laughs> it's yeah, it brings me back. I kind of miss it. Now everyone's just got their, you know, AirPods in and in their own little world. It's so soulless. <laughs> I know. Uh, and isolating. Yeah. Um so uh but but so well actually both of these things revolve around scenes with Radio Rahim. Um he has uh he gets into a little boombox battle um with a group of guys who are playing um music from a latino station and he also goes into the korean grocers trying to get batteries he needs 20d batteries yeah which must have cost a fucking fortune and also like that thing must have just eaten batteries by the way the way he was using it oh yeah but um particularly with the Korean grocers, but also in other scenes, like with uh, the Latino guys and with Rosie Perez's mom, there there are scenes where it shows that like racial tensions in this movie and in the real world, obviously they're not limited to just being between black people and white people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I thought this movie did a really good job of, you know, I mean, and and it's in some ways, and again, it's not subtle at all. Um, and you know, maybe you can take issue in retrospect with how they portrayed the Korean family. Maybe it was a little bit stereotypical, um, or you know, that type of thing. But the fact that yeah, it is a situation where you know the uh, the black characters who have lived there and their families have lived there for generations. 
um, have a certain amount of antipathy towards the, you know, the Korean family who is first generation immigrant and, you know, owns a store when, you know, they have not been able to to have ownership of anything for, you know, for, for social reasons that um, that, you know, they, that they that that there is a, a certain amount of antipathy towards them. And, and then also, of course, um, to sell uh, and you know, the way that there is tension among or between all of those different groups. And it's not just a black and white thing. There's Latinos and there's Italians and there's Jewish people and everything else. Yeah. And, you know, at during the uh, the end, when Sal's goes up in flames, they almost do the grocers, too. Yeah. Yeah. And. It stops, but it made it made me think back to you know in L.A. during the L.A. riots uh, over Rodney King, um, a lot of the brunt of that was felt by the Korean American community by mm-hmm. Korean grocers, basically, which again is a thing that makes this movie so crazily uh, prophetic. Yeah, the fact that it happened, I think, three years. This movie came out three years before the yeah, LA riots. Was that um, uh, 93, 92, 93? I think it was 92, but it just uh, somewhere in there. And I mean, you know, absolutely right. And then sort of the larger idea that I think is still true today and we talked a little bit about this earlier, but um that you know, th- we there isn't a villain in this movie and it's kind of everyone's just t- trying to get by and everyone because of their life experiences maybe has had you know, prejudices, which some people take further than others. Um, but they're, but, you know, they're, they're kind of learned, uh, by everyone. And I mean, even the cops, you don't really dislike the cops. You kind of feel like the cops are somewhat doing their job and they're portrayed, um, somewhat, you know, empathetically as well. Um, well, again, I mean, I I guess policing has really changed. And you mentioned that before, and that's something that, is just so stark when you see the footage of what's happening today with police in tanks and, you know, armor and basically like dressed like Iron Man going in. Well, that's a question that I started thinking about, which is that like, how much of this is that like, so you can see on a graph, um, the extent to which, um, the, the pipeline of military tactical gear to the police has spiked, in it's always existed a little bit but it's spiked so much particularly in the past like 10 years but especially like in the last five and like how much is there the 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 idea of you give people weapons like this and they're gonna fucking use them or yeah. at least, like, you give people, you know, like, you, you know, you dress someone up like Iron Man, and they feel like Iron Man, and they're they're out there like, I'm fucking invincible, and I can do whatever I want, and, like, I can, you know what I mean? Like, how much of it is that, like, arming someone like this is, if not the root cause of the problem, a root cause of the problem? Yeah, um, and... You know, there's the old saying, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. And the more hammers you have, the more nails you're going to find. Um, and it's almost, you know, as, as you know, Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, you know, warned of the military industrial complex. Um, and we've seen how that uh, over the past, whatever, 60 years 
has, you know, changed U.S. foreign policy. But that has been increasingly true domestically as well. And, and you know, the events of the past few weeks have definitely, um, you know, made that, you know, stark reality kind of put it right in all our faces where the police have become incredibly militarized. I mean, the, the first time I remember really being cognizant of that or or noting in that was and this was the 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 Boston Marathon bombing was 2013. Uh, do I have that right? Uh, 2012. I can look it up. But, I but still in law school. I, it was, you know, around there somewhere. And, you know, there was. And 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 for if anyone doesn't remember, or you know, we you know we're in the Boston area here. Uh, twenty thirteen. Uh, twenty thirteen. So seven years ago. Um, and you know, in the Boston area, they locked the whole city down. They were like, "We're finding these motherfuckers." Um, and you know, you saw the military in these tanks with this armor, looking like they were you know soldiers on the battlefield, and. Um, you know, at the time, uh, you know, even if we didn't live right in the midst of where it was happening, I think even nationally, uh, there was a perceived kind of sense of security. Um, it was reassuring. It was reassuring. But, you know, <laughs> the other side of it is it just keeps increasing. You know, once it gets normalized that, you know, instead of just walking around with nightsticks, um, the police are walking around with, you know, shooting rubber bullets into crowds, but, you know, shooting pe- pepper spray at people, you know, using tear gas. And once that get nor- gets normalized, you know, there's just another step, you know, power always wants more power and it never goes the other way. And uh, it gets to the point now where, you know, you look at this movie and that's the one thing that has changed, which you said before, you know, the there's an early scene where the two cop characters come to the neighborhood and the one has this big wrench, this big metal wrench that he, that's a tool for him to turn off the fire hydrant. But they definitely make a point of he's walking around with this looking ominous. Yeah. Uh, but it just, you know, that just seems quaint historically when you see, uh, you know, way that the police are going in and dealing with you know the the protests that are happening today and it's just you know we we live in a police state really there's no other way of putting it we live in a fucking police state yeah they just look different like they're just in regular uniforms they're not in like tactical gear right they're not in like they're in like light light blue not like dark or all black you know and you know the cop cars are just cop cars they're not like armored trucks you know, and even responding to what happens at the end, it's just like a bunch of cop cars and a fire truck and they turn hoses on people. And, you know, it was supposed to read as disturbing then and it still does now. But compared to what happens now, like. The reaction would be worse. Yeah, that's right. And. I mean, when they're then when they're turning the hoses on people, that definitely. I mean, has... obviously, a callback to what happened during the civil rights era. Of course, yeah, um, but you know, they're they're shooting water at people. They're not shooting tear gas at people, it's, or rubber bullets, whole, or real yeah, bullets. It's a whole yeah. different game now. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there are a couple of specific scenes I wanted to call out. Um, one was um, the racial slur montage 
Yeah. Uh, I guess this is kind of like just like of a piece with everything that we've been talking about so far. But um, did I almost feel like with everything else that the movie does, that was one bit where it almost was like the movie didn't need it. You know, like it, the whole rest of, you know, you were talking about how the movie isn't subtle mm-hmm. and that's kind of like the least subtle part, you know, cause everyone's talking straight into the camera, the language used, obviously not subtle. Um, but it's kind of like, I, we got it already. You know, you know? It, it was not necessary. I, it was like a departure from the overall story kind of i mean all those things were expressed in the behaviors and just the dialogue of the characters um so it wasn't necessary i think that as sort of a little standalone um vignette in the middle of the movie uh i thought it was powerful and i think that if you just kind of took out that like two minute segment and showed it as like a short film uh, or even like a preview of you know, if, if nobody had ever heard of Spike Lee or Do the Right Thing or what it was all about, um, it would kind of communicate that very directly because it is so blunt. Um, and I also thought it was, I mean, it was well written as just someone who en- enjoys sort of uh, the, you know, stringing a bunch of bad words together. Um, sure. It, it was, you know, it was very well done as well. Um, but I get your point. It was, it, and, and I think I mentioned this before, that sometimes Spike will just put things in his movies that kind of stick out kind of as a sore thumb and kind of takes you out of the movie and, and, and maybe, um, you know, makes the overall, not on in retrospect, but during watching the movie, makes other things that happen a little less powerful because it's like you're reminded of, oh, right, I'm watching a Spike Lee joint. Yeah. Well, um, while I was critical of that, um, there, there's one scene that I wanted to call out specifically that I thought was great, which is um, kind of the prelude to the finale, which is the first time Radio Raheem goes into Sal's and has that kind of pre-confrontation with him. So Radio Raheem goes into Sal's, his boombox is blaring, fight the power, and... Um, Sal wants him to turn it off before he'll serve him. And they kind of argue over it before Radio Raheem does turn it off. And it starts getting like really tense in there for a minute. And the way the tension builds up is just like extremely well done on Spike Lee's part because it's all like these really good little directorial touches where you know it's again all the things you're talking about where we can't feel the heat but visually speaking we can see it so all the characters are very sweaty we can see sal is drenched in sweat uh a few shots of pinot sweat radio raheem his face is covered in sweat and everyone is looking directly into the camera they're almost kind of breaking the fourth wall which is a little uncanny and um you know, so it's like they're all shouting directly into our face. Yeah. Radio Raheem is also very close to the camera, which is a little disturbing. And um, the loud music is, is you know, underneath it all, like the really loud music 
with everybody shouting just like builds the tension you know everyone's screaming at each other everybody's sweaty like you know the colors are all kind of like a little bit red you know the scene as as a prelude for what's to come is really really well done so i wanted to make sure i mentioned that yeah uh, absolutely i'm glad you did um i agree i don't think i have anything to add uh but i agree but so that brings us to the end which is you know the actual destruction of cells where well we can describe what actually happens to destroy cells do you want to actually um run that one down well yeah it's so uh sal's closing up shop um we have you know his two sons and we have spike in there and sal's talking about how they had a good day they made good money that day um and you almost feel like you're gonna get out of it everything all right for a minute yeah. it, it tricks I mean, you we knew we weren't but yeah you kind of feel... it's it's night everything's starting to cool off a little bit yep Yep. Um, and then we have and, and, and you know, Sal even, you know, says uh, towards, you know, toward, towards Spike Lee's character, um, you know, that he thinks of him as a son and that he's always got a place here. And uh, you kind of, uh-huh. yeah, you, 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 you kind of feel OK for all of them or you just hope that they're OK or I don't know. Um, some some folks uh, bang on the door. You know, some of the minor characters that we've seen throughout the film uh, hanging out together, uh, the Martin Lawrence character and a few others. And uh, Sal says, yeah, okay, let's open up the door. Let's, you know, four slices and then we'll close up. Yeah, he does um, a nice thing. Does a nice thing. Opens up the door for them. They all come to sit down. And then we have uh, Radio Raheen and... Um, Gene Carlo Esposito, a, a buggin', buggin' out, right? And, yeah. uh, and, and the Smiley. Other, and Smiley, the stuttering character, um, or the character who has... And, may, and as a quick side note, maybe that's one character that would have been handled a bit more delicately had the movie been made today, but yep. uh, that's, that's kind of a, a small thing. Um, you know, he's kind of convinced, or they've all kind of convinced one another, you know, to that, that you know, this Sal guy is the problem. And they're going to come in and basically they're coming in to, to, to start an argument. Um, and and it's interesting, too, that in this final confrontation, everyone there is angry for different reasons. Everyone's angry for different reasons. That's right. But they're all it's all been bubbling up with every character throughout the entire day. Uh, radio Raheen has the radio, which he is completely blasting. Um, and you, you know earlier in the movie sal has you know made a point of you know there's no no music in my store no boom box in my store none of this rap junk in my store you know so they start to have a confrontation he refuses to turn it off sal takes out the baseball bat and uh bangs the crap out of the boom box and um, drops the end bomb and then and then the end bomb comes out which you know, and just and just kind of being very observant of the language. Um, and there's a part earlier in the movie where, um, you know, they there's they they ask you know Spike Lee's character um, one to to talk to Gene Carlo Esposito's, and they say, "Well, you know, uh, go go speak brother to him." And Sal says that, or Pino says that. Pino says that, I believe. Right. Yeah. Uh, go speak brother to him. And there's this idea that, you know, brother is a stand in uh, you being used as, as a stand in for the for the N word. 
Um, so, you know, when Cell kind of feels like he's pushed and it pushes all his buttons and then he just gets ugly and he and he lets it out. And not once. He lets it out a bunch of times while yep. he's banging that radio. And then from there, it just all hell breaks loose. And everyone's just, you know, kicking the crap out of everyone else. Uh, mainly it's Radio Raheen and Sal fighting. But, you know, obviously um, Sal's uh, uh, sons are, 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 you know, fighting with, uh, with, with, with bugging out. And, and, and everyone's just kind of getting in on it. Um, you know, Spike's kind of in the middle of the action, you know, kind of stuck in the middle of all of it. Uh, and, and it just escalates and it escalates um and and then the police show up and radio raheem gets killed by a cop who's using a chokehold i I mean i don't know about you but just watching obviously you know watching what's been going on watching the news you know i've i've had a few nights the the first night where the rioting really started and and they were uh and and they were you know, they set, they set the police station on fire. I mean, I, I stayed up till three in the morning that night watching the news. I just, I couldn't tear myself away. And it's been, and, and part of it is because, you know, the world's still shut down with this pandemic and, and, and we're not going about our day to day the way that we used to. And it just kind of seems like there's no escape from everything that's going on. And, uh, and, and just from, being very in touch with the visceral, emotional gravity of all of this, and it's not like okay, I can't, I, I, I can't deal with that. I have to go to work. I mean, I remember when this is several years ago when the when the Newtown shooting happened, and um, you know, someone told me in passing, "Oh, did you hear about this?" Um, you know, uh, like twenty five kindergartners got gunned down. And I was in the middle of a busy work day and I was like, and I, you know, you have the ability to compartmentalize and you're like, oh, that's horrible. Can't think about it now, shutting it down. And then I remember going home that night and, and watching uh, back when we had a president when watching Obama's speech um, and, and just kind of letting it all out. And we and, and, and that being, you know, I think when I was younger, I didn't really get as emotionally invested in real world things that are happening in the news that aren't directly connected to me um but you know just just having this happen 24 7 and just seeing this go, all go on and you know if you're not human if you're not invested in this and you're not human if you don't just you know see that image of psychopathic cop but you you can say psychopath but it's the banality of evil um it's the system uh, that's just so inherent and not only in, in the cop with the knee on the back, uh, 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 of the neck, but, but the, the cops that are standing around not intervening and, and letting it happen and encouraging it by their behavior. Um, and you know, I just was not ready for what happened in the climax of this movie, even though I, I kind of sensed and sort of knew that it was going to have some sort of violent confrontation. I, 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 I was not ready for it to just be, you used the word alarming earlier, to be so alarmingly prescient and, and relevant to what's what's happening today. And, and, and it just, it was, gut punch isn't the right word, it was a ton of bricks. The, the climax of this movie was a ton of bricks to me. 
Yeah, it was prophetic. I, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. And the fact that it's 31 years old and it's still all just the same shit. It's, and as you said, the only thing, the only thing that you can see being different is, is the militarization of the police and the fact that it would have been worse had it happened today. Um, and, you know, this is after we just had a black president for eight years. Um, you know, yeah, we, we like fooled ourselves into thinking we were making progress, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't mean to sound hopeless right now, but it's just such a stark reminder. It's just right there. It's just. It's yeah, well, today. I mean, I I don't think the people who made this movie would want it to make you feel hopeless. Um, well, I don't want to read anything into their intentions, but um, I, I don't think that should be our reaction to the film. Um, because despair leads to uh, inactivity um, and passiveness. Mm-hmm. So we should try to avoid that, at least. Um, maybe, uh, you know, righteous anger, perhaps, is the more appropriate response to the, what we saw at the at the conclusion of this film. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that righteous anger is where I'll, where I'll channel it into, hopefully. Um, one thing about this this podcast is generally when I do it, it's like I've seen the movie for the first time right before we record and it hasn't resonated. Um, I think that righteous anger is definitely the direction to go in with the emotion uh, that this movie caused in me. That isn't the last scene. The last scene is a conversation between Sal and Mookie, which is also very much a relevant one to our current moment because the conversation is about two people who don't see eye to eye about what is important about just what happened. You know, because Sal is, you know, in his way, upset about what happened to his pizzeria. It was destroyed. Okay. Mookie, for his part, is upset because someone just died. Yeah. And, you know, that's the difference between the two of them in that moment. I guess, I mean... And it's echoed in, uh, you know, the debates we hear on the news right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a simplification, I think, to say that. I mean, I don't think that... Well, you know, you just, you hear, you know, like, you know, property can be rebuilt but uh when people die they don't come back yeah that's absolutely true i mean absolutely true i I, uh and i think that beyond that the reverence people have um particularly white america for private property is because they've always had it and black america has not and just because you've had property does not mean you can't be like property is property buildings are buildings statues are statues we rebuild shit a human life can't come back 
And there's no excuse or justification to falling on the other side of that. There's no justification for being more exercised about what happened to a fucking target uh, than what happened to any human life. So on uh, the Wikipedia page, it says that um, the title Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee says only white people ask him if uh, Mookie does the right thing when he throws. Because, you know, one assumes it refers to what Mookie does at the end of the movie, throwing a garbage can through the window of Sal's, which diverts the anger of the crowd away from Sal over the death of Radio Rahim. Because, you know, in that moment, they're ready to kill Sal and his sons. Um, Mookie throws the garbage can through the window of the pizzeria, which diverts their attention. They destroy the pizzeria instead of killing the men. And Spike Lee says, uh, people ask him, did Mookie do the right thing? But he says only white people ask him that. Interesting. Uh, Black people don't ask him that because to them there is no question. Interesting. So, anyway. That is sort of the end of the notes for me about the movie itself. Did you have anything else you wanted to bring up about the actual film? There's so many things in the movie that we didn't even touch on just because of kind of the meandering nature of our conversation about it. You know, we didn't touch on Demare or right. uh, Mother Sister or, you know, we didn't really talk about Samuel Jackson's character or all of these different side characters or a whole bunch of different subplots. But, uh, you know, if, the, if there's anything you want to bring up, I you think know. just uh, on that theme, you know, I, uh, just because the context we watched this movie in and the reason we chose to do this movie at this time and just the seriousness uh, of everything going on and the issues that this movie deals with very bluntly, I don't want to give the impression that this isn't a very fun movie. This movie is in some time, at some points hilarious. Uh, this movie has a ton of colorful, fun characters um, this movie has a lot of characters that are kind of, uh, you know, talking to each other, joking with one another, ragging on one another. It's all just so fun to watch. It's a hangout movie, as you said. It's a fun hangout movie for most of it um, with this underlying stuff that happens and and uh, an ending that is, that is, you know, incredible and just, uh, or far too credible maybe, um, but, but just, you know, so moving to watch. But throughout the whole movie, it's it's fun, it's funny, it's just well done. It's a it's a fun movie to watch from beginning to end. Yeah, agreed. It's got a ton of style. Yeah. Um, I, I I liked it. Um, I I want to offer a couple of things, sort of you know, as kind of downbeat as the conversation got there. I have all of these other kind of notes that I could get into, but they're kind of equally down downers. Uh, because they're about kind of contemporary reviews and uh, a lot of white critics who sort of like didn't get it. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to offer a counterpoint to that because I'd like to maybe, as we near the conclusion of our discussion here, be a little bit more positive. Uh, so I'll bring up some reviewers who did get it. Uh, Siskel and Ebert got it. Uh, they both called the film the best film of 1989. And both of them put the movie in their top tens for the decade of the 1980s. Mm. You know, so and Ebert, um, when talking about the reviewers who 
didn't really get the movie. So some reviewers came out of the movie and called it morally confused, basically, because, you know, the film ends with two quotes. One quote from Martin Luther King, which denounces violence, and one from Malcolm X, which um, doesn't promote violence, but, um, you know, suggests that sometimes it may be necessary in, yes. in the world in yeah. order to bring about justice. Um, and so some white reviewers were like, this, uh, you know, the movie's great until the end when it becomes morally confusing and, you know, black audiences might be incited to riot because of this. And so, you know, it's got a, a morally mixed message at the end, et cetera, et cetera. So all that. And so what Ebert said was, um, of course, it is confused. Anyone who walks into this film expecting answers is a dreamer or a fool. But anyone who leaves the movie with more intolerance than they walked in with wasn't paying attention. That's very well put. And the two quotes that ended the movie, it was it was brilliant to me. Um, ending it like that uh, and ending it with those two quotes, which I've read before. You know, the one, the Martin Luther King quote, specifically, I think I've seen um, shared in a way that gets it wrong on social media by white people uh uh very recently um the eye for an eye part uh just that that entire quote of you know of of the nonviolent message um uh and, and particularly um among i think uh white people who want to focus on the looting or focus on the violence instead of focusing on uh the peaceful protests and the overall message and uh, the violence of the police officers uh, to uh, to the public um, and, you know, kind of want to uh, want to justify or, or, you know, side with uh, what I, in my view, is clearly, you know, the wrong side of this, which is, you know, which is the state, which is the police. Um, and, and to blame, you know, those who have, uh, you know, got maybe gotten violent as, um, you know, as being the main focus instead of the main focus being. Uh, you know, what caused all this to happen. Um, and, you know, when when Martin Luther King, I think, you know, a lot of people don't realize uh, when he was assassinated and, and during his life and when he was uh, having his marches, he was vilified by white America. He had not popular. Yeah. He was not popular. He had something like a 70 percent disapproval among white people uh, on the day he was assassinated. So. When I see white people take the stance of and misappropriating the person and the legend and the uh, words of Martin Luther King um, and say, well, you know, I would have supported that, but I don't support this. Uh, those people are ignorant and, and, and just not educated and not appropriately putting it in the historical context. So that and it's easy to say now, easy to say now. Exactly. And, you know, I'm not the I'm not the first person to say this. I've seen this said a lot. But, you know, we are currently living in history. And for all those people who said uh, who, who are so sure that had they been around during the civil rights era, uh, they would have been on the right side of that. Or, you know, had they been around uh, when when slavery was occurring, they would have been on the right side of that. Um, 
well, you know, are you sure? And the way that you're, the way that you're acting right now, and the opinions that, that you have right now, um, are, are are definitive as far as which side of that you'd be on. Um, yeah. And uh, th- so, uh, in in that context, this specific quote um, that I mean is a beautiful quote uh, by Martin Luther King, but I think it has been recently misused by people who are just getting the entire thing wrong. But outside of that context, I've always kind of been fascinated by uh, the sort of dichotomy of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and their different approaches. And, and, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that sort of uh, dichotomy or, or, or those conflicting maybe um, approaches are true in any kind of political movement or anything else, really. Um, it's always been something that's fascinated me to think about because I think both both things have to happen um, for progress to be made. And uh, I think we're seeing that play out today. Yeah, well, I think the point of ending the movie with the two quotes side by side is to make you think about that exactly in that way walking out of the film. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, clearly it did its job. One last thing to put a positive spin on the end of this movie. I don't know if you've seen the film Red Hook Summer. It's a Spike Lee joint. I haven't, no. I haven't seen it either. But apparently in the film, uh, Spike Lee appears briefly as Mookie, which means it all takes place in the broader Spike Lee expanded universe, like the MCU. Hmm. And it suggests that uh, Sal used the insurance money that he got from the burning down of the pizza place to reopen it in Red Hook and that he rehired Mookie as his delivery guy. Uh-huh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me feel better, too. So, Will, before we go, I just have one last question for you. Was the movie better late or never? I mean, better late without a doubt. And and I will put a different definition on better late is I am a happy, not happy. I'm glad that I saw this movie now when it seems so relevant. Um, and I'm glad that I somehow missed it or didn't get around to it or skipped over it um, kind of earlier, maybe when I was a teenager and watching a lot of movies uh, of the of this cinematic movement slash genre, because um, I don't think I would have appreciated it then. I don't think that these issues were, I mean, certainly they were happening, but they weren't so much in the forefront and so much immediate. Um, so not only is it better late because I'm glad that I saw the movie and uh, I think that that I that it's that I'm better that my life experience is better for having seen it, but I also think that it's better late in that seeing it now during this time uh, was was important. Yeah, co-signed in full. I really can't add anything to that, including the part about it being better late as taken better late. You know, I think if I'd seen this as a less mature person, I wouldn't have gotten as much from it. So. Uh, seconded 100%. Will, this was a really good conversation. Thank you for coming on this pod and doing this one with me. Yeah, thank you so much for for suggesting, you know, this movie. And, uh, and, you know, hopefully this was 
the, hopefully this was an appropriate you know thing to do and, and an appropriate episode to have during this time and uh and a way of dealing with this um yeah i hope so too i mean it was um, cathartic for me if nothing else yeah same so you know if nothing else it was helpful for these two white guys <laughs> which i'm sure was exactly what spike lee had in mind when he made it he was like you know one day decades from now two, two white, white guys, guys are gonna feel a hell of a lot better about themselves i nailed it <laughs> you did it dude you did it you, spike. You, you achieved your dreams you reached the mountaintop oh reach for the stars buddy they're in your reach Oh, boy. Well, with that, thank you very much for listening. We will be back with more episodes soon, and we will catch you next time. Bye.